0: How would you disrupt yourself? How would you disrupt yourself? How would you disrupt yourself?
1: On today's so, show, I went to take the L set and I sat down in front of the test so, how you and the words just started yourself. swimming around and I, I you know I I read one problem but I couldn't really figure out the answer, and I just guessed at something. I did that with the second and the third. Ends so up, I, I, after six questions, I had no idea what, what I was doing. So you know, I, I called over the proctor, I raised my hand, he looked at me like I had 10 heads, and he said, what is it? And I said, here's the test, I don't, I don't want my results. And I walked out. I walked out of the set. Welcome to the Disrupt Yourself Podcast. I'm Whitney
0: Johnson. I think, write, speak, and live all things disruption. Today's guest is Maureen Chiquet, former CEO of the iconic brand Chanel, and most recently author of the book, Beyond the Label.
1: My name is Maureen Chiquet, and I just finished writing Beyond the Label, Women, Leadership, and Success on Our Own Terms. I had a really zigzag career because I studied literature in college. And I really film and theater as literary text. I mean, what do you do with that, right? So I ended up, um, because I had fallen completely in love with France when I was 16 and had gone back as a junior in college, I ended up going to France right after college and trying to find a job. And I found a job as an intern in the marketing department of L'Oréal, Paris. And that was really my first job. Coming out of there, um, after about three years, I left because I'd met the man who was to be my husband some extenuating circumstances, we decided to make our way to California, only we hadn't really researched the market and there weren't that many product management jobs. So I ended up seeing this wonderful poster of Miles Davis with his head in his hands. It was a Gap poster and I quote unquote fell into the Gap. I worked for Gap as a merchant. I had no idea what merchandising was but I started over. I was a merchant. Uh, what,
0: what is it? So what is it for everybody? So mer- mer- else who yeah, know right. What a merchant well, well is. the reason
1: I had no idea is when you hear that term and you think about a merchant, you think about somebody who actually stands behind the counter and sells you products. And I thought, oh my god, I don't want to be a salesperson. But it turns out in retail lingo, a merchant is someone who works with the design team to pick the very best products for the stores, and then she will look at those products and figure out how much she should buy, how much to invest in. And then from there, where to get them made, how to get them made, and follows their sales trajectory all the way through to markdown and, and when they're done. So a merchant kind of is it. I mean, in those days, it really was a jack of all trades in the retail business. So merchant at the Gap for six years when I got a little tap on the shoulder from a colleague. Yeah, go. Wait, before yeah. we do that, yeah, yeah,
0: yeah. we need to back up.
1: So how did you get that job? I mean, you just... Yeah.
0: No, I well, you, you just you just described a really fun job figuring out what people want to buy, working with with designers to design the clothing and and you said you fell into the gap. But how did you actually
1: fall into the gap? I should say the beginning of the job wasn't all that easy. Number what one. Was it? What well, was it? so so coming to San Francisco and not having any job, I sent my resume around and eventually got a call back from the gap. And I sat down with the recruiter, and the, and the recruiter said, what do you want to do? And having seen that poster, and this is Miles Davis, who I loved, a jazz musician, in his black t-shirt, soulful head in his hands, like, I want to market the Gap, because I love what your posters say about, about the company. They say anyone could look cool in a Gap t-shirt and express his or her own personality. He looked at me like I had 10 heads, and he said, that's advertising. We don't do marketing. And this is, you know, we're talking about 19 whatever eighty-eight now. Um, and he said, we, we, you're, you're a merchant. I said I'm a what and that's actually how the merchandising thing started. But my first job in merchandising when I first started was a trainee. And this is after by the way 3 years of marketing at L'Oreal and I thought I was, you know, I thought I was something after those 3 years. Turns out I didn't know anything about retail, so I started in the sample closet. So that's where all the old samples go to rest. <laughs> and and organizing the sample closet was my first big job, which, you know, in, in, in the end, it was actually kind of interesting because I learned all about the products and what makes them, you know, the, the, the kinds of things that you sell. But, um, so your first role at The Gap was in the sample closet? Yeah, I was pretty much cleaning the sample closet and then doing these very onerous spreadsheets called the Open to Buy, which is basically an inventory control mechanism. But at the time, we didn't really have computers in the same way, so we were doing them on paper with, you know, pencil and erasing and, and writing back in again. And it was it was a it was a hard thing because you had to collect a lot of data to put into the sheet. And as a as a young merchant, not knowing where anything is or where things belong, it was a really challenging moment for me to learn all these numbers that again I hadn't had to which I had no exposure when I was at a place like L'Oreal.
0: You said you fell in love with France when you were in high school. Yeah.
1: How did you fall in love with France? How did you get exposed to France? Um, I when I went to my I had changed schools when I was in 10th grade from a public school to a private school because I really, really wanted to learn. And I had one of those great teachers Mm -hmm. that, you know, you get that just inspires you. And through her accent, speaking French, the pictures, I kind of held this romanticized version of the country. And I I wanted to taste it. I wanted to feel it. I wanted to speak that language perfectly. I also really admired my father growing up and still do. And he had learned French without ever having a textbook. That's how they learned in his his high school. And it turns out his accent was flawless. So I wanted to be like my dad. So I asked my parents when I was about 15, 16, if I could go spend a summer in in France. And I found a program where you could spend a month with a family. Turns out I was so lucky because I got to go to the south of France, to Provence, right near Nîmes, a tiny little town called Calvisson. Which was on the outskirts of the big city and just in the fields of lavender. And everything in France, I mean, everything in that part of France just lit up my senses. It was like the golden light shining on the, on the, on the wonderful limestone, those lavender flowers, and that, that, the, the smell that kind of invades every cell. And then tasting goat cheese. Goat cheese was a whole new thing in France for me. My dad, I mean, my, my dad had kind of had us taste the American kind, but we couldn't get the. The the real sense of that um, that the kind of grittiness and wonderful pungency of of a good goji.
0: So you had changed schools. You ended up with this amazing French teacher, right? And the combination of that and your admiration for your father, France was the place for you.
1: Yeah, France was the place for me, and I wanted to explore it and really get to know it. And in fact, I, it, it was almost like we started a love affair. France and I, um, I became obsessed with everything French and. The other thing I think that happened while I was there, which was so crucial, is I started to notice the way the French appreciated and took in beauty. Everything slowed down in the south of France. I mean, moments just to look out into a beautiful field of wildflowers, moments of, you know, having l'apéro with pastis. It was just like they reveled in the beauty and the natural beauty of, the, of their land, of, of their foods, of the things around them. And that moved me and that made me want to go back. So they were mindful before mindfulness was a thing. I feel like there, is, there was a kind of mindfulness because things were slower and there wasn't that push to always do. You know, there, there was a kind of sense that something could be just as enjoyable if you're just sitting around and chatting uh, uh, over a pastis. Pastis meaning? Pastry. Pas- no, no, pastis is this anisette liqueur that oh. you add to water. And Ernest Hemingway talked about it famously in one of his books. Because it comes out clear, but when it hits the water, it becomes cloudy, so it's kind of oh. mystical, yeah.
0: You studied film and literature at Yale. How did that influence you as
1: a merchant and as a marketer? It was amazing, actually. I don't think I could have chosen a better course of study, which sounds strange because when, you know, when you think of marketing and when you think of retail, you think of numbers and you think of spreadsheets and you, pie charts and graphs. But it turns out that what literature did for me, first of all, was all about stories and about human connections. And most products that, any product that I was going into, but most consumer products rely on a certain emotional connection. So I think that's number one. Number two, film and theater really dimensionalize and show signs and symbols that get us emotional, right? So as you're looking at an image, that evokes a certain emotion. You so I and, and particularly in French New Wave, which I studied. There's a way that being very attuned to my own emotions while I was watching something allowed me to think about how consumers might see something, how they might view something, and ways that we might change or, or craft an image to, to in- encourage purchase. After you graduate, you go over to France, and you get your very first job, and it's right. at L'Oreal. Correct. How did you get that job? Upon graduating, I did not have a job. My dad is a lawyer, mm-hmm. still is very successful lawyer, and I admired my dad. So I thought, well, I don't know. I guess I'll just go take the LSAT. I mean, what else do you do, right? All of my friends, by the way, had jobs in i banking or management consulting. And, you know, I was a lit major, and I was not going that way. So I went to take the LSAT, and I sat down in front of the test, and the words just started swimming around. And, I, I you know, I, I read one problem, but I couldn't really figure out the answer, and I just guessed at something. I did that with the second and the third. Ends up, I, I after six questions, I had no idea what, what I was doing. So you know, I, I called over the proctor. I raised my hand. He looked at me like I had ten heads, and he said, "What is it?" And I said, "Here's the test. I don't, I, I don't want my results." And, and I walked out. I walked out of the all set. So fortunately, and you'd probably never
0: done that before.
1: I never. I was Ever. so high achieving. I mean, I was a kind of kid who spent, you know, every Saturday and Sunday in the library. Right. You went to Yale. I went to oh. Yale, and I worked so hard. And, you know, I was determined to get, I I got really good grades. I was determined. I really wanted to do something. It's just, I realized it was one of those moments where you go, you know, I can't do this. This is not the life for me. And as much as I love my dad and think what he does is interesting, I don't feel it inside me. So, you know, I got up and and by by the way, quite uncharacteristically, I had not studied for the LSAT at all. Which
0: should have told you something.
1: Should have told me something, <laughs> but you know, you're 18, whatever, not 22 years old and you, know, you, think you, you think you have it all figured out, right? So quite fortunately, my very best friend when I was in France and roommate, and I had been very lucky to have a roommate when I'd gone on my junior year abroad, um, had her, her uncle knew somebody and I was able to get an internship for six months in, in Paris. And that's how I eventually ended up in Paris. But I got to tell you, I don't know what I would have done. I think, you know, I actually do know what I would have done. If I had not had a job, I would have moved anyway to Paris, and I would have gotten, I don't care what kind of job, I would have swept floors, I would have, you know, waitressed, I would have done something so that I could be closer to that culture. That's how important it was to me at that time, and still.
0: It's an interesting um, comment that you make about that you were willing to sweep floors, because um, in your book you talk about a number of instances where you took on roles um, that weren't necessarily glamorous or exciting um you know here you've been the ceo of chanel but it's not like it was one straight shot up the ladder with you know a path of rose petals what are some examples i mean you talked yeah. briefly about the sample
1: closet what are some other examples where well, you took a job that or got a role that wasn't quite what you thought it would be well i mean i, I should probably start back with l'oreal because when i got there you know, I was going to be in marketing, by the way, I couldn't spell marketing probably at that point. No, I really didn't know what it was. But they send you out on the road mm-hmm. as, a, as a sales rep, basically. And I, I really didn't like selling things, but I was kind of looking forward to it because I thought maybe they'll send me back to the south of France mm-hmm. and I can visit my family and I could see all the beauty there. Not so fast. I ended up being in the north of France um, in coal mining country, which is traditionally sort of the, the foggiest, grayest, Most dismal part of the country. And that's where I was stationed to sell cosmetic and hair products out of my little suitcase into hypermarkets. And hypermarkets are like giant supermarkets. So it was like Sam's Club. Yeah, like Sam's Club. So imagine I'm alone. I'm now 22 and a half or whatever with my little suitcase, staying at two star hotels and trying to sell products to people who, in French, by the way, of course who really are buying that plus peas plus sanitary uh, napkins, <laughs> you know, you name it. They really don't care about my hair gel. So I think it was the first time I had one of those kinds of jobs. That I'm like, I don't think this is what I bargained for. I was supposed to sell end caps. Do you know what end caps are? I have no idea. Okay. End caps are at the end of an aisle, the things that are on promotion. Oh, yes. So I was supposed to get one of those Okay. and I was supposed to negotiate it. And the marketing team, this was the, the only thing I knew about marketing at the time was what the marketing team did, which was Basically, these pamphlets had set up this great, you know, marketing speak for me to go and try to sell this guy, um, who buys peas too um, some studio line, which is a new gel product, some hair mousse. I go, you know, wait for him in the cold, f- freezing back room. He comes out, shakes, extends his elbow for me to shake because, you know, his hands were dirty from stocking things. And first of all, I told him my name and he was like, my, my maiden name is Popkin. He goes, What? what kind of name is that? It kind of looked like he had eaten a, uh-huh. you know, <laughs> a, a, a lemon. And, and then I proceeded to tell him, you know, and I'm looking at his hair, which is all like slicked back. And I'm telling him he could get more fluff in his hair with this studio line mousse. And I could see this is not resonating. Right. He is not listening. And then I realized, you know what? I can't speak this marketing speak. I have to speak his language. So I just sort of said to him, how much would it cost? You know, what, what, what would it cost me to get one of those end caps? And that's when we actually got into conversation and we did, each did our little dance on our calculator and I ended up getting the end caps that, and, that I wanted. And my boss was really excited because I had succeeded in, you know, in, in, in what he had asked me to do. But you weren't able to do it until you spoke the language of this yeah. man. I, was, I mean, it was sort of, again, one of those moments where you realize you're on the wrong track, you know, and, you know, I'm looking at his hair, realizing that he has this broader responsibility that he's not, he doesn't really care about studio line. And that really what he cares about is getting the right products that will sell through and that, will, that he, can, he, he can make good money on, essentially.
0: Your first job is in L'Oreal. Then you and your husband, um, you move to the United States. You get a job at The Gap. You start in the sample closet. Right. You can kind of give us the zigzags and maybe one other job that was difficult
1: or not so fun along the way. And then you got to Chanel. After the sample closet, I was actually in the accessory department my responsibility in the accessory department, I was um, assistant merchandiser of socks and belts. Now here I've gotten to the gap and I think I am going to be buying all those cool t-shirts and jeans. And No, my responsibility is socks and belts. Not exactly what I bargained for. But what was so interesting about it is I found ways within that opportunity to actually kind of stake a claim and make a name for myself. And notably it was with belts because belts had been ignored by the Gap. And when you walked into Gap stores, there were these rounders and most belts sold at $9.99, which was kind of barely above cost. And I don't know if you remember this, but there were these braided belts and all the guys wore them. That was basically the belt assortment. So I'm like, this is an opportunity. And I noticed that a lot of women were wearing jeans and a lot of women were wearing wider belts and it was, belts were kind of a thing. So I decided that I was going to build this new assortment of belts for Gap. Well, it turns out, I, and, and because I, lo- I actually really at that point was kind of an estate, and I loved leather, I loved the way it smelled, it turns out that I, the kind of leather I could get was expensive, that, that I wanted was expensive. But um, I took a risk and had all these belts made, and actually ended up convincing my boss and my boss's boss that we should price the belts much higher, like in the 30s, and that I was convinced that we sold them, that we could sell them. And in fact, we did. And Wait, I, how did you convince them? How did I convince what did you? Do? It, well, in, in, in this case, I basically, you know, I set up, I got all the belts made, number one, which, you know, that's a, a, risky. Yeah, I got them all made, exactly. Um, I lied them out on a table and I really figured out what the downside was to one of the things that they taught us at the Gap was, you know, if you're going to take a big risk, make sure you know what happens if it doesn't turn out okay. And so I, I, w- I had everything prepared and I had all the data points prepared. I looked at how much denim was selling. I looked at the increases of denim selling. You know, I, I mean, I basically, I, I didn't actually take pictures of women with belts on, but I pointed them out in the office. I'm like, shouldn't we as Gap, an American company, have belts to go with our American jeans? And indeed, that was, that was uh, you know, they were willing to take the risk with me. And it was an amazing success. And it built, in so many ways, it built my reputation. You know, I became kind of like the belt girl. And it was funny, I was telling this story to someone um, not that long ago. And she said, and I said, I did this belt called the C buckle and it became our next staple belt for women. We hadn't had a belt for women. And she's like, oh my God, the C buckle. I think I still have that in my closet. So it really was kind oh, of a big funny. coup. And, and, you know, at the time you could say, well, belts, that's a small area. What are you going to do with that? But it was really for me finding the, the opportunity in even the smallest areas that right. I had.
0: Absolutely. That's a great story. So that was a career maker for you playing where other people
1: didn't want to play yeah. to be a career Take, maker. And taking, you know. Even when you have a job that you think is lesser than what you're supposed to have or isn't as interesting as you want, finding the thing that you can get passionate about, that you can get behind and make into an opportunity. And for me, that was a critical part of, of my merchant career. Okay, so belt a gap.
0: You create this, you build this market out substantially. Right. What happened
1: next? So I was then later promoted to the denim department, which was... a. Uh, really interesting for me because denim was an area that relied a lot, and contrary to what I thought that relied quite a bit on sourcing fabrics, figuring out how much fabrics getting to the cutter and how much needs to be cut. and it was very actually very technical and very difficult for me because I once again, I kept seeing myself in this fashion job. But in that job, even in that job, I found ways to innovate and it ended up that new washes were really popular than you know, all this stone, stone washing and sandblasting. But it did lead me to one of my biggest lessons um, when I got yelled at by the CEO of the company for I not would, listening to I him. I
0: would love to hear this lesson. <laughs> yeah.
1: Um, so I was, I was now, I think, associate merchant in denim. So I'd grown, you know, I'd, I'd been promoted and um, I was seven months pregnant. My boss was actually on maternity leave, which was a great model for me. Uh, and Mickey Drexler, who was the then CEO, called me into an advertising meeting And the the goal of these meetings were usually to figure out what products we were going to advertise at the GAP. And so, you know, I'm rushing to get my denim samples all on the rack and I'm waddling around because I'm seven months pregnant and I had gained quite a bit of weight in that pregnancy. So I rushed down to the area that the, the conference room where the meeting was, and I started to show him my brand new finish in a new pant called the wide leg jean. And boy, was I excited, and I just, I just went in, and I, and, and I also knew Mickey, so I was trying to second guess what he might think. And so I thought, he's going to think I'm a wimp for not buying that lot, but I'm going to show him how much I bought. So I gave him, you know, I'm buying X amount of units, and, and he, you know, half, halfway through, partially, he stops and he said, wait a minute, can I see that wash? And he looks, like he goes, it's was a gray wash. He said, but if this is such a good wash, why aren't you doing it in the classic fit jean? I'm like, well, you know, no one wants to wear the classic fit jean anymore. It's, it's old. It doesn't fit right. No, no, no. But how many classic fit jeans are you selling? And I said, well, I don't know, 20,000 a week. And how many, you know, this wider leg thing. At the time, we had a similar jean, and it was like not even, not even a fraction. And, and I kept going. I said, but Mickey, you know, the classic fit jean just doesn't look good anymore. I mean, look, and I, I just kept, I was almost steamrolling him. And finally, he stopped the meeting. And he said, you are not... Listening to me, and he got really upset. Walked out of the meeting, said, I've got to go I have another meeting. Walked out of the meeting. Now, I'm an associate merchant, by the way, I was the sole breadwinner in the family. What did you do? How did you feel? Well, I started to cry. <laughs> I mean, really, yeah. I, was, I was really upset because I thought I'd lost my job. Yeah, I, and I realized I really, really aggravated him, and I was sure that this is it. You know, this is this is the end. Went back to my office, and I'm thinking about. <laughs> calling my husband and saying, honey, we, you know, we got to figure this, this out. I don't, we don't, I don't think I'm going to have a job after today. And the phone rang and it was Mickey. And Mickey said to me, Maureen, you're a really good merchant, but you need to learn to listen. And he said, really listen. And not to me, not because I'm the CEO, that's not the kind of listening, but listen to your colleagues, listen to your customers, open your ears, listen, take things in. And I thanked him, and obviously he didn't fire me, um, but I thanked him, and you know, now I, I continue to thank him, because I've, I've told that story before, because it's so, it was such a critical part of who I became as a leader, the this, this skill of listening. Because I think listening can be as important, if not more important sometimes, than talking.
0: Can you think of a time when you were CEO, and you found Mickey's voice in your head? Um, in a particular conversation with someone where you thought, I need to listen right now? Can you think of one of those
1: times? Yeah, there are a lot of times, particularly when I first came to Chanel. um, When I I first came to Chanel, I was really the only woman at the head of a table of 10 men, and and, and they were really savvy executives. All of them had been in the business for the luxury end of the business for 20-some-odd years. Um, Many of them were a lot older than I was. Many of them had been in the company and had deep history and roots in the company. And I remember coming there and I, you know, you go, I went through about a year of training. So I was traveling around Paris and meeting all sorts of people, traveling around the world, looking at our manufacturing, looking at our sales, looking at our marketing, you know, every department. Um, I remember formulating quite a few opinions and really wanting, by the time I got to be the, the CEO, really wanting to in, start some things institute some strategies but i found myself really saying you got to slow down you got to listen to things from their perspective you got to you got to sit at their side of the table and hear before you make any decisions and it ended up being invaluable because i think the team given where i was and i was you know 43 american woman coming from my you know my biggest claim to fame was Old Navy, selling, you know, $5 t-shirts off the back of a truck, and I'm coming into the most iconic luxury brand in the world. So I think for, for me to earn their trust and for actually to be credible, listening ended up being more important than talking.
0: What made them be willing to take a risk on you? Because from their standpoint, as you just described that, you were a big risk. Um, you weren't, yeah. you know, one of these things does not look like the other one. Yeah. Um. What do you think got them where they said, okay, she's, she's younger than we are, um, she's a she, she comes from a different kind of background, Old Navy, not luxury brand. What
1: got them to the point where they said, she's the person? You mean watch. upon hiring me or once I was in the... Yeah. yeah. yeah we, had a, we had a very um, interesting courtship, I would call it, mm-hmm. because it, it was about a year over a year uh, that I was being interviewed on and off. And it was, it was fascinating because the first interview I went to with one of the executives, he asked me a lot of questions and almost none of them were really, truly hardcore business oriented. There were a lot about how I might think about creativity, how I might think about the brand Chanel, what I thought about the brand Chanel. And it was, it was curious to me because, you know, I went in there guns ablaze and ready to tell them how great a business person I was and how I'd grown old Navy from zero to 5 billion. I had, Started to turn around at Banana Republic by that time, and, and you know, there, was, there, there was a lot to, to brag about. But there wasn't really the appetite to hear that. They really wanted to know who I was as a person and whether my values, the things I cared about, were in line with theirs. And you know, it turns out through a year of on and off interviews, I began to understand that what they really cared about was somebody who could hold creativity as the most important thing in a company. And in fact, for me, creativity had always been such an important part of my life. And the artistic part of what they they did for me was was the most important part. So I think the risk, the ability to take the risk came in knowing first that. And then I think the second thing is they didn't want somebody to come in and just change everything. They didn't want some kind of transformational leader who was going to upset this beautiful brand. And given that I was willing to be trained for three years, basically a year in France and two years in the U.S. operations, that was already speaking to the fact that I was willing to really integrate, take the brand in, understand the culture before acting. And to them, I think that was really critical. So you interviewed for a year, then you trained for a
0: year, then you went did operations for a year. So basically four years before
1: you took the reins. Yeah, more or less, because, you know, in, in 2000, I, let's see, I, I probably met them the first time in 2002, and I became CEO in 2000, it was almost five years, 2007. So, it, 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 so yeah.
0: That's really interesting. So, it's, it's this notion that when you first walked in the door, you had all the bona fides, right? You, right? It was clear that you could build a business. That's why they asked you to talk to them in the first place. Yeah,
1: I, I, th- I think that's fair to say, yeah. They knew, they knew that I had achieved right. I mean they they had the credentials. Right. So now it was a matter of can she all the soft skills because the domain expertise was was established. Absolutely. That that's exactly right. They were looking for soft skills and they were looking for, I want to say a value match. You know, something for me to care about the same things, for the person who was coming in to care about the same things as they had cared about in the way they built the brand. It didn't mean that I wasn't allowed to make changes and that I didn't make changes later, but it meant that I was going to take a good pause, really integrate that culture, understand the business model, understand the people, where they came from, why they were doing what they were doing before I went out and acted. What's your proudest
0: moment as a developer of talent? Did you have any specific initiatives in place, not only developing specific people, but also initiatives that would recognize people who were willing to develop talent?
1: The thing that was really important to me especially in a legacy company like Chanel where everybody's been there for so long and doing such incredible work in a very specific area was actually to start to mix that up a little bit and not in a way that would take people out of jobs, but actually get people exposure to areas that they hadn't been in before. So one of the things that really worked was identifying talent, just raw talent. And, moving them into other kinds of jobs, not always up the ladder. Disrupting them, But yes. often laterally. Yes. And what the, the benefit of that was, not only did you get people remotivated in the same company, you'd been doing the same jobs for a long time, but you got new ideas in places that hadn't seen new ideas for a while, right? So we took people from one region to another region. We took people from marketing to creative. We took people from sales to marketing. I mean, I could name, you know, from fine jewelry to cosmetics, from fashion to fine jewelry. I mean, you, you, we really tried to mix it up and, and we're, it, was, it was a purposeful initiative that actually the entire leadership team embraced because they could see the benefits both in the motivation of their people, but also in the new ideas that came out of those areas. If you were to
0: talk to a college student who says, someday I want to be a
1: CEO, <laughs>
0: <laughs> what advice would you give them?
1: Well, you know, I have this funny thing. I, I, I actually don't love to give advice, but I like to ask a lot of questions. Okay. So I guess I would ask the question why first. Why do you want to be a CEO? What about being a CEO really attracts you? I mean, what makes your heart sing? Because what I've noticed is that we have sometimes ideas and ideals about what these positions are, what you do, what you get to do, the privileges. But we don't un- always understand the complexity, the difficulties, the responsibilities. And so I would actually start with questions because I've, and I, and I actually have, it, now I have it down almost to a series of three questions, which I've, I've talked to a lot of people that I've, I've used before. And it's really interesting to hear, but I like to ask people what makes their heart sing. If I strip out the label, if I strip away the CEO title, and I take away the title why do you want that job? What makes your heart sing? What are you really excited about? If I take away the title of your next job, what do you care about? What can't you live without? Like I couldn't live without France for a while and I would have done anything to go there, you know, and you know, it, it really would have been a sweeping floor. So everybody has those things. The, the second thing, uh, and I hesitate to call passion because passion people all of a sudden jump to job type, mm. but, but really inside you, what do you care about? The second thing I like to think about, which is kind of obvious, is what do you do well, and where can you make a, a mark that's distinctly your own? And what you know, for me as a marketer, I was up against at L'Oreal. I was up against all these people who had graduated from business school. They all knew the, the lingo, UPS, and market segmentation, all these things. And what I knew was how to see. I knew how to see, and I knew how to understand emotion. So that ended up being my mark. So what is your unique mark? You know, we think about all the things you do well, but what is the thing that distinguishes you from everyone else? And I think the third thing is what context are you in? You know, where are you right now in your life? And there are times where you might have to take a job. I mean, initially when I got that job at The Gap, when I, you know, when I moved from Paris, I didn't really want to be a merchant, right? At least I didn't really know what a merchant was. And so, but circumstances made it so that I had to take that job and I had to do something with it. So I think that combining a lot of questions gets you closer to something than kind of advice for building a career to become a CEO. Right.
0: Can you think of one of your hardest days on the job yeah. as CEO? Oh, yeah. <laughs>
1: what was it? So this, is the, this happened actually um, towards, towards the end, but I'd say three or four years before I left. Um, I had made a decision based on how disrupted actually our world was meaning the internet and globalization and millennials, all these things were coming at us that had not existed before. We were sitting, standing in front of the unknown. I had decided that to launch a leadership program because I felt that the way to address problems, you had to go more systemically to the core. And how do you actually get leaders to change their behaviors to be able to, to take in the, this unknown future, think about this unknown future? So um, I had this great idea. I'm going to launch a leadership program. Um, I had practiced a different kind of leadership myself, myself, which was much more about listening and asking questions, sitting on other people's sides of the table, getting people to work in unique ways, as I described. So I had been practicing, and it was working pretty well. So I figured we should all actually embrace these qualities, because this will help us with all the disruption in our world, right? Well, on a rainy day, don't ask me why I decided to do this in July, but on a rainy day in July, July is the worst month in France. Because it's, it's when everybody's getting ready to go on vacation, they're distracted, they want to get everything done, they're stressed. So on a rainy day in July, I corralled my team into this big, dusty conference room. Actually, it was a ballroom. Um, we looked like little ants in there. And I decided we are going to, I had hired a consultant from California. Now, I, by this point, by the way, there are more than 10 men on my team. They're now a team of 20, including at least six women. I first send them outside to do team-building exercises. It's raining. I don't know if you've done team-building exercises. Sometimes they're great, and sometimes you really don't want to do them. Well, this is one of those times you really didn't want to do them. Then I bring them back in, and I tell them that we are going to proceed with this program. I put the consultant in, and we're going to learn how to be more empathetic, and we're going to listen better, and we're going to be more agile. And Of course, I am doing everything but that, right? I'm doing the opposite. So, you can imagine what happened with my team. I mean, they, they, they basically almost threw me out of the room, to be quite honest. Um, and it was, I what think, what did that, that look
0: like? What did they do?
1: Well, at lunchtime, everybody was chit chatting about how much they disliked the consultant, about how much they hated the exercises. There, were, there was like subtle and non subtle. When we, when we did, you know, I asked them a series of kind of leading questions that they refused to answer. I mean, it was really, there was just sort of strong resistance. When we started having conversations about some of the things that I wanted us quote unquote to do going forward, because actually I was very much in an us them situation then. Mm. Um, uh, It was them, really them to do going forward. So
0: then what happened?
1: So you realized. So we left the, we, we, we left this um, ballroom, went back to New York, uh, because this is obviously in Paris. And I really, really sat with it for a while. And I realized that I had made the very mistake that I didn't want to make. I had actually become what I didn't want to become. You know, I was trying to force a leadership program down their throat. So I decided, you know what, I was going to cancel it. I was going to fire the consultants, who were good, but they just weren't right for us. Um, we had had an offsite plan. I stopped the offsite, And I actually wrote a letter to each one of my um, leadership team members, 20 of them, asking them for an hour and a half of their time just to talk to me. About what they cared about, wow! How how they saw all, our culture? What in our culture did they want to keep? What did they want to evolve? Where were they in their leadership? How did they feel about their positions? And, cl- and I collected all of those um, twenty peoples. It was it was a massive un- undertaking. Collected all of that their things, and I created something that we called the Frums and Twos, which is really you know where do we where where do we want to move from and where do we want to move to? And brought them all together, and we agreed and gave input, everyone gave input to a document that actually set the course for another leadership initiative, which is one that we co-created together. But it was it was, it was tough. It was very and tough it, on me. And was it
0: tough because, I mean, how did you feel
1: when that happened? I remember purposely trying to be optimistic and keep kind of a, a big, broad smile on my face, but inside I was getting crushed. Because I think what I, the things that i I wanted to bring forward authentically were good things. Like I believed in what I was doing and I kind of knew that I was going about it the wrong way. So I think my inner critic was very, very loud and I was pretending she wasn't there. Um, But I was, I was crushed in a way by my own mistake, by knowing that I, knowing that I went into this the wrong way. Mm -hmm. Do you remember the first time you put on a Chanel suit and how did it feel? I remember the first time I put on a Chanel jacket for sure. Um, I was actually in Paris on a shopping trip. We we used to um, if if business was good, we used to get these twice a year shopping trips to Europe as a merchant, and it was really to look at trends, to look at visual merchandising, to see what was happening in a this different. Is when you were at the Gap, when I was at the Gap, actually, th- this was when I was at Old Navy, and there was a there 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 was it's going out of business now, which is so sad. A store called Colette in. Um, in, in Paris, very hipster store, cool things. And what's cool about the store is they mix high and low, and so they just do everything really well. Um, and I saw this jacket on a tea stand, and it was a Chanel jacket. And I'm like, wow, I really, that, that's, that's really beautiful. That's, that's cool. I, I thought, you know, at the time I thought Chanel was kind of not for me, it was for, you know, more mature women. And I tried on the jacket, and it just fit like a glove. I looked at myself in the mirror, I'm like, I have to have it. I became obsessed. I had to have the jacket. And I actually pursued the jacket all along Paris. I mean, I went into every Chanel store, which was actually very difficult because at the time I felt like I couldn't walk in with my jeans and, mm-hmm. you know, flip-flops or whatever. But um, I, went, I went after that jacket in every store, finally decided that I'd return to Colette and get it there and, um, you know, go for that. I, I, call, I remember calling my husband, honey, can I buy this jacket? And it ended up being a, a, not one of the more expensive jackets because it didn't have a lining. But the feeling of it was, you know, I feel like what Chanel jackets do sometimes is give us a feeling of confidence because they fit so well, and, and, and in a way, provide almost—and this might sound strange—but almost a little bit of armor too mm-hmm. to the outside world. How much did it cost? I think I it was like two thousand mm-hmm. dollars. So that was a big purchase. It was for me. It was. Re- it was ridiculous, but I I I, I needed it, and it, it was actually kind of obviously prescient. I mean, you know because at the time I I had not been interviewing for Chanel.
0: At the beginning of your book, you talk about how when you um, left Chanel, you put all your suits away and kind of packed them away and said, it's time for a new wardrobe. How have you figured that out? And what clothing now (sighs) are you wearing that you feel like, or
1: maybe one piece of clothing that you feel like really captures who you are now? I'm, I'm actually still figuring that out. I feel like You know, it's funny when you, you know, the book is called Beyond the Label, but when you literally strip away the label, when I took off that label of uh, CEO of Chanel, there was a real rebuilding of my identity. And that, you know, I I tell that story because it came kind of in a very metaphorical way through clothing. Um, But I think it's something I'm still figuring out. What I I found, and I've always liked mixing really easy, comfortable street clothes with nicer clothes. Um, but one of the, na- the, the, the newer things that I really like are the shoes that I'm wearing today because they're, uh, they're kind of, they're flats, they're not heels. They're um, Oxfords, and they have this cool chain around them. And they say a lot about what I love in fashion, which is a mix-up. Mm-hmm. So they're men's shoes made for women. They have this little chain around the welting, which is kind of a, I don't know, kind of a punky detail, which I think is really cool on a more conservative shoe. And what's been always fascinating for me in my wardrobe and fashion is pulling together paradoxical elements. So, you know, you wear the ripped jeans with the Chanel jacket. You know, you, 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 you know or you wear the really nice pants with the t-shirt. I just love that, that mashup. And so I'm finding that I'm really attracted to going back to mixing things up. I actually never left it because at Chanel, I wore jeans every single day. And actually, it was great to watch how the, fem- the female population started to move into jeans as well and re- realize that they could change their Chanel look.
0: So what are you excited about now?
1: Well, I've been doing a lot of speaking, a lot of podcasts like this. Um, I love connecting with people and hearing their stories. I mean, one of the things as a, as a literature major and as a, you know, with, with film and theater, um, stories have been the way I learn. Mm-hmm. And so I'm hoping through story that we can have conversations and learn together. And that's been really fun for me. In addition, I'm doing some consulting work with uh, young entrepreneurs, companies that I feel passionate about. And I'm going to start writing again. I really, you know, I feel like writing was something that I discovered strangely late for somebody who is a literature major, major and spent most of her childhood reading. Um, but I, I love the craft of writing, so I'd love to continue doing Will it. Will you write fiction? I want to. Mm. I actually want to write a screenplay, but
0: oh, who knows? Oh, I Why no, wouldn't
1: you? Yeah, I, 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 no reason. I'm going to try. Yeah. Yeah. Fantastic. It's a totally different form. I started learning it, and it's fun because... I love the craft of something. I mean, I think it's why I really loved fashion. Just the beauty of the craft of something. So because screenwriting has a completely different mechanism to write, I'm enjoying just the craft of it. Where can people find you? Uh, I have a website. I'm on LinkedIn. I'm on Facebook. Okay. I'm on Instagram. Okay. Maureen Chiquet. So do you have yeah. some fun photos on Instagram? I bet you're a, bit, a big into Instagram. I, I, you're so right. That is the one, that's the thing I like the most because yeah. I, I'm visual. Yeah. So I love to take pictures. Yeah. I, I've taken some cool pictures. I, I, the other day I was taking, a, I loved to hike and um, we were taking a hike in the woods and for whatever reason, it must've been raining the the few nights before, but there were these fantastic looking mushrooms. Mm. And I found myself looking at all the mushrooms and taking pictures of them. So my Instagram, I have those cool mushrooms. I have pictures of, you know, Paris. I have silly pictures. I sometimes think silly pictures are fun. Like the time uh, on the book tour, I got stuck in one of those tiny little planes in the back right near the the, uh, bathroom. Actually, I moved because that they had they had a weight issue, so we had to move to the back, and yeah. the guys wouldn't agree. So two women moved to the back, um, and I took a picture of my Chicka Pop uh, oh, yeah. snacks. Uh
0: huh, uh huh. I had those yesterday. <laughs>
1: See, those are good.
0: So, what will you do to disrupt yourself in the next twelve months?
1: Well, I think I already have by taking the screenplay writing class, like and that. then the other thing that I really want to do, and I don't know that I have the time to do, is I'd like to take a thirty day break. From this, ah, and uh, the reason I want to do that is I'm somebody who loves to take in the world through my eyes. Mm-hmm. I don't like being behind a screen. I get really, really inspired when I'm in nature, when I'm watching theater, when I'm watching film. But you know, being a slave to the internet seems to stop me from doing all that. So I'm, I'm, gonna, I'm hoping to disrupt that We're habit. Take a break. Well, thank
0: you so much, Maureen. I really appreciate your time. And I guess the
1: your best boss. I think you were going to say it was Mickey, right? Um,
0: you experience. know, Mickey
1: and probably Jenny Ming, who is an amazing boss. Oh. And the reason Jenny was such a powerful oh, boss yeah. for okay. me was, and I didn't write a lot about her when in the was book. She's your boss. She was my boss the whole time at Old Navy, so okay. eight years. Okay. And um, what I found remarkable about her as a boss. In a way, wasn't the things weren't the things that she was doing? It was what she wasn't doing. And I know that sounds kind of contradictory, but Jenny allowed me to grow. Mm-hmm. She, when I was, you know, she would actually she gave me guideposts like a good boss, but she also allowed me to grow and to flourish and put me in positions that I was able to do that. The other thing that I think was amazing about Jenny is she exposed me to parts of the business that I didn't know without the, sort of without the responsibility of having to run those areas. So she pulled me into advertising meetings. She pulled me into real estate meetings while I was running merchandising. And she she was just very thoughtful about the way she mentored. And and in a way, it was much more of a mentorship and a partnership than it was boss to employee relationship. she prepared
0: you to become a CEO? She
1: totally prepared me. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. Wow.
0: Well, Maureen, thank you again. I really appreciate it. Thanks. This was a lot of fun. Thank you. I'm still thinking about Maureen not finishing the LSAT. This was unprecedented for her. And from where I'm sitting, it was her first major personal disruption. She was willing to take a step back to let people think she'd lost her mind. As Seth Godin says, winners quit all the time. They just quit the right stuff at the right time. Key to disrupting yourself over and again is knowing when to quit. Another thing that caught my attention is the razor's edge of being new at something. Part of the value of your being at the low end of the learning curve is that you aren't blind through familiarity. And yet people will not be able to hear a single question, a single word of advice if we aren't willing to hold what has come before us with some reverence and appreciation. Which brings me to my tip. The next time you walk into a new role or assignment, you will see a lot that you would do differently. Make a note of it because you'll forget and at the appropriate time, share what you see. Also, make a note of everything that's working and admire it. One of my mentors, Carol Kaufman at the Institute of Coaching at the Harvard Medical School, recently gave me this advice. She said, whenever you're thinking about making a change, ask yourself where you are today on a scale of one to 10. Let's say you're at a three. Before you go any further, ask, why am I not a two? In other words, what's already working? I think this is great advice when you walk into a new situation. Before looking to make changes, look at what's working, what you're in awe of. And in time, people will be willing to hear what isn't working, what could be improved. Thank you again to Maureen Chiquet for being our guest, to sound engineer Whitney Job, product manager Macy Robison, collateral editor Heather Hunt, and art director Brandon Jameson. I'm Whitney Johnson, and this is Disrupt Yourself.